This is The Political Scene, a weekly conversation with New Yorker writers and editors about politics. It's Thursday, March 7th. I'm Dorothy Wickenden, executive editor of The New Yorker. In President Trump's State of the Union address in January, he announced his plan to increase funding for HIV-AIDS research with the goal of eliminating the disease by 2030. My budget will ask Democrats and Republicans to make the needed commitment to eliminate the HIV epidemic in the United States within 10 years. We have made incredible strides, incredible. Together, we will defeat AIDS in America and beyond. Trump's pledge came a month before the announcement of a scientific breakthrough, a second patient believed to be cured of the HIV virus. Jerome Groupman joins me to discuss Trump's plan to combat HIV-AIDS and the politics of science and medicine in this and past administrations. Jerry, welcome back. It's a pleasure to be with you, Dorothy. So I decided it was time to focus on some good news because that's not usually what we do on this podcast. You have been on the front lines of the AIDS epidemic from the very start. And maybe you could start just by telling us about the London patient and whether this is as much of a scientific triumph as people are saying. So the London patient is a man who had HIV, the AIDS virus, and also had the misfortune of developing a lymphoma called Hodgkin's disease. Typically, Hodgkin's disease can be cured with standard chemotherapy or radiation, but in his case, his cancer was so aggressive that he had to have a bone marrow transplant. Now, the researchers in England selected the donor to give him normal uh, bone marrow cells with a specific genetic mutation or change. And it's been discovered that about 1% of the European population has a change in their DNA that makes them pretty much resistant to HIV. So they selected someone to donate the bone marrow who had this mutation with the hopes that by giving him essentially a new immune system, in the context of a bone marrow transplant, his new immune system would be resistant or impervious to HIV. And in fact, now uh, more than three years since the transplant, there's no evidence using the most sensitive techniques that he still has the virus. So this shows first the proof of principle. This is the second patient who in the context of a bone marrow transplant, can have his immune system resurrected and resurrected in a form that it is resistant to HIV. And and what about the dangers with bone marrow transplants, which are so harrowing? They are, and this is far from being the kind of treatment that one would offer to the vast, vast majority of people with HIV. It would only be considered in someone who has the misfortune of having both HIV and cancer requiring a transplant. But what it does do is prove a scientific principle. And that is that this change in the DNA for a large number of people with HIV 
could make their immune system resistant to the virus. Now, how are you going to do that short of the horrible toxicity of a bone marrow transplant? And after many, many years of failure, scientists have developed ways to both edit and insert genes into our blood cells. This has succeeded recently in blood diseases like thalassemia, uh, sickle cell disease, and so on. And it's possible in the coming years that the techniques can be refined so that you would take the cells out of a person with HIV, genetically manipulate them, return that person's cells so they, they don't need a transplant because they're their own cells, but now you've altered their cells to be resistant to the virus. So this uh, provides the foundation for pursuing that line of treatment. You know, I'm really interested in what you say about failures and how science tends to take these leaps after a big failure. Didn't you yourself as a researcher have one of these failures that now has led to one as part of the progress we're seeing now? Yes. So... When I started first working on the biology of the AIDS virus, HIV, it appeared and everyone uh, accepted as uh, conventional wisdom, so to speak, that the virus entered the immune cells through a protein on the surface of the cells called CD4. So my group developed decoy molecules like trapdoors based on this CD4 protein. The idea was that we would flood the bloodstream with these decoy proteins and HIV would attach to them and then be eliminated. And we published papers in Nature and Science. It was on the front of the New York Times. And we conducted the first clinical tests in people with AIDS. And it was a complete failure, an abject failure. And it turned out that what we didn't know was that the virus has another doorway that it uses to get into immune cells. So we were providing a trapdoor, but the virus just shrugged that off and was able to move into the immune system and destroy it using this alternative portal. Smarter than you were. Much smarter than <laughs> we were, smarter than anyone conceived of. But it turns out that that second portal, that, that second door, is precisely what led to the possible cure of this patient in London, because he was given cells that lack that second door. So the virus basically has no choice. It just keeps circulating and circulating, and without the second door, it can't really enter cells. So our failure... Uh, led to the search for a more deep understanding of the biology of the virus, how it enters cells. And once that was gained, that can now move from the laboratory bench to the bedside. So how realistic does Trump's plan to eradicate HIV AIDS in the next decade? How realistic is that? Well, I think uh, I would say it's mixed in the following way. Uh, just this week, the Journal of the American Medical Association, JAMA, published the strategy that, you know, really luminaries in the fight against AIDS, Anthony Fauci at the NIH, 
Robert Redfield, who's the new head of the Centers for Disease Control, published the framework following Trump's announcement. And it basically targets both transmitting the virus to people who are not infected and also pre-arming people with drugs so that they don't become infected. What it requires is widespread treatment of people with HIV. And the second is what's called PrEP. There's basically pills that people can take if they're going to have exposures. So this is a way on a population level to try to basically snuff out the virus. The problem is that it requires a robust clinical care infrastructure foundation. And many of the people with HIV are poor drug users and so on, and they depend on state services. And there is complete schizophrenia going on with regard to wanting to fulfill this um, laudable goal of snuffing out the AIDS epidemic versus Republicans talking about cutting back Medicaid and also the Paul Ryan trope about entitlements. We saw that the deficit and the debt have exploded due to the Trump tax cuts and the tariffs and all the rest. So I bet we're going to hear the Republicans talking about cutting entitlements. Um, For this plan to work requires more than the intelligence and the drive of Tony Fauci and Bob Redfield and others. It requires the Trump administration to get its act together with regard to making sure that quality health care is provided to every American. Well, the other thing is Trump's announcement came as a surprise given his administration's outright aversion to supporting scientific research and his denialism about science-based facts on any number of issues. Why do you think he has singled out this one as deserving of funding? Uh, I think the politics behind this uh, may well be that the state's which have the highest HIV in rural areas, the so-called hotspots in the government plan are red states, and they overlap with the opioid epidemic. States like Mississippi, Alabama, South Carolina, Arkansas, Oklahoma. So I don't want to sound cynical, but I am very clear-eyed about what drives the president. But unless Arkansas and Mississippi and Alabama and Oklahoma and South Carolina ramp up their Medicaid funding and have government assistance to do this, and we have no idea what the budget's really going to look like for this initiative, it's going to fail because it will lack the infrastructure to do what Fauci and Redfield are proposing. This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, I'll talk with our Washington correspondent about the many political battles being waged in the Capitol over how to deal with the coronavirus. You couldn't imagine a president personalizing a crisis with a virus, but somehow that's that's where we are. Susan Glasser, this week on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. 
You know, you have a unique perspective on on this historically and with HIV. And I wondered if you could walk us briefly through how earlier administrations have regarded the crisis, beginning with, you know, at the very start of it in the 1980s. I think that um, uh, the initial federal response was a travesty. That was largely under the Reagan administration, where ministers were yelling that this is the wrath of God, you know, visited on gays for all their sins, and that it was foreigners and immigrants from Haiti that were poisoning the country and all of this. And there was really very scant federal support with regard to either research or care. And curiously, you know, in the famous Tip O'Neill uh, quip that all politics are local, when Reagan found out that the Hollywood star Rock Hudson, who was an icon, was actually a closeted gay man who was dying of AIDS, all of a sudden Reagan just switched 180 degrees. And Elizabeth Taylor, who was a great friend of uh, Rock Hudson, took it upon herself to go out there. And somehow this tempered down a lot of the not only stigma, but just absolute bigotry against people who were coming down with AIDS. So it required that for the federal government to pay attention. It also required tremendous activism. There were gay activists who were chaining themselves inside Congress and the uh, NIH, demanding that their community be addressed. It's also worth pointing out that uh, George H.W. Bush and George W. Bush both played important roles in getting the federal government involved in taking care of some of the problems. Very much so. And I think one of the real achievements of the George W. Bush, uh, and this may have actually, you know, ironically grown out of his evangelical uh, background and so on, was the idea of the United States subsidizing HIV treatments, which were incredibly expensive for underserved countries that are economically disadvantaged, where the epidemic was exploding, like in Africa. You know, according to the article from Fauci and Redfield, more than 20 million people are currently on antiviral drugs because of the George W. Bush program. And I mean, that's just extraordinary as an achievement. And of course, it's beneficial from a humanistic point of view and also beneficial in terms of the economic impact and so on that this has, but most importantly, from a health impact. And that's the other thing. There was murmuring early in the Trump administration that they were going to cut the George W. Bush program for these African countries. Uh, but I haven't seen that again. So I'm I'm hoping that that was just a a flash in the pan from some of the more uh, odious members of the administration. I think Pence announced, didn't he, in, in November that they were going to extend funding for PEPFAR? I believe they will. And I see that as a reversal of what was initially being murmured, that they're going to cut all of this. Speaking of reversals, how much damage has there been in funding cuts at the science and health agencies, the EPA, NIH, National Science Foundation, Department of Energy? Is it true that Congress rejected the initial slashing by the White House? Yes. So uh, this is an example where the White House really does not have its finger on the public pulse. 
there is a very strong anti-science mentality. The federal government, the original budgets, was to slash NIH, the National Science Foundation, NSF, and so on. Um, and, you know, the Congress is very aware that Americans prize their health, but also advances in treatment for cancer and, um, you know, autoimmune diseases and uh, HIV and all of the other portfolios. So the, the Congress just rejected it. And they restored the funding and actually corrected for inflation and increased the funding. So this is one example, a rare example, where you get bipartisan strength in the Congress to block these kinds of destructive initiatives that initially are proposed through the the Trump budgets. I, I was sorry to see this week that one of the most forceful scientific voices in the administration, Scott Gottlieb, the head of the FDA, had resigned. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, he is, uh, he's, you know, clearly a Republican and he's, uh, you know, a free market guy and all of this, but he's a serious physician scientist. And I, this is public information. He's spoken about the fact that he had Hodgkin's disease uh, uh, as a younger man. So he's someone who experienced and benefited from the kind of scientific progress and medical progress that came out of NIH and, and from the FDA. As the head of the FDA, he has really pushed forward the accelerated approval of important cancer treatments. And he's also addressed really key public health issues like the anti-vaccination uh, crusades, which are completely misguided and dangerous. He also came out against vaping, which is very popular and was being sold to younger people as, you know, safe cigarettes. So he's really been one of the stars, one of the few stars uh, in this administration. And it's, it's really a loss uh, that he resigned because he is a superstar. Thanks so much, Jerry. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Pleasure to talk to you, Dorothy. Jerome Groupman is a New Yorker staff writer, a professor at Harvard Medical School, and the chief of experimental medicine at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. This has been The Political Scene from The New Yorker. You can subscribe to this and other New Yorker podcasts by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app and find more political analysis and commentary on newyorker.com. Feel free to rate and review The Political Scene on Apple Podcasts. Our theme music is by Russell Gillespie. This program is produced by Alex Barron for NewYorker.com with assistance from Kylie Warner. I'm Dorothy Wickenden.